Welcome back to There is a Season, the Pete Seeger podcast. This is your host, Adam Morse. There is a Season is a podcast devoted to reevaluating the work, music, and politics of the late American folk musician Pete Seeger. On this show, we work towards rediscovering and getting more in touch with Pete Seeger's contributions to better understand how we can more fully apply them now and in the future. Join us today as we discuss Pete's musical activities during World War II, how the FBI ramped up their surveillance of Seeger during this period, the additional records Pete made during this time, and the founding of the People's Songs organization after the war. By the summer of 1942, Pete Seeger was in the Army, stationed in Biloxi, Mississippi. He had received his draft notice just a month or two before, and even though he was going into the military, Seeger practically welcomed a change of pace. The Almanac Singers had not been doing well over the last several months. The press had discovered that the group had connections to the Communist Party and originally sang peace songs before Pearl Harbor. This didn't make the Almanacs unique at all, But the bad media was enough for the musicians to lose gigs, their management agency, and a possible recording contract. Because of all this, Seeger felt like he hadn't accomplished much. His increasing aggravation had come out a couple of times. Once, when they were performing during the late winter earlier that year, they were playing for a crowd that wasn't listening closely to their songs. Pete had seized the microphone and verbally laid into the audience for not caring about the message in the music. After the Rainbow Room incident not long before this one, Pete's patience was wearing thin when this same phenomenon would continue to transpire at other venues. Additionally, Seeger's anger about the whole situation was exhibited when the group was driving back to the city from a retreat where they were trying to figure out what direction they now needed to go. Pete Hawes was apparently suggesting they needed a real manager, when Seeger suddenly put his foot through Haas's mandolin in the back seat of the car, smashing the instrument to pieces. Seeger had seen himself as acting manager out of necessity, and believed he was doing the best he could, and was infuriated that other members of the Almanacs weren't respecting his efforts. Seeger's anger could be scary when he lashed out. By being so willing to be drafted, Pete was effectively trying to rid himself of his anger towards the state the Almanacs were finding themselves in by the spring of 1942. Pete had tried to put all this behind him as he was sweating in the humidity and heat of Keesler Field in southern Mississippi. He was enrolled in classes where he was studying the hydraulic system of a B-24 bomber in preparation for becoming an aircraft mechanic and even graduated second in his class. He had disappointed himself by not volunteering for combat duty, but the danger of it kept Seeger at bay. His assumption was that he'd receive his orders soon anyway and be shipping out in no time. Strangely, though, Seeger's orders never arrived. Later on, he found out why this was. Military authorities had been going through Seeger's mail. In their eyes, they had concluded that, based on what they discovered, Seeger could be a security risk. What were the things they saw? For one, Toshi had written Pete on stationery belonging to the Japanese-American Committee for Democracy. Why did this alert the authorities? Franklin Roosevelt's infamous Executive Order 9066 had already relocated many Japanese-Americans into camps in the western part of the country, 
and Seeger was therefore suspect for having connections to a Japanese organization. Secondly, in protest against the internment camps, that autumn Pete had written a letter to the California chapter of the American Legion protesting the rounding up of Japanese Americans on the West Coast. Specifically though, Pete was voicing his outrage at the American Legion's public suggestion that all Japanese Americans be deported after the war. The text of Pete's letter is the following. Quote, I felt shocked, outraged, and disgusted to read that the California American Legion voted to 1. Deport all Japanese after the war, citizen or not. 2. Bar all Japanese descendants from citizenship. We, who may have to give our lives in this great struggle, we are fighting precisely to free the world of such Hitlerism, such narrow jingoism. If you deport Japanese, why not Germans, Italians, Romanians, Hungarians, and Bulgarians? If you bar from citizenship descendants of Japanese, why not descendants of English? After all, we once fought with them too. America is great and strong as she is because we have so far been a haven to all oppressed. I felt sick at heart to read of this matter. Yours truly, Private Peter Seeger. I am writing also to the Los Angeles Times. Unquote. Firstly, regarding those who might criticize the question of equity in Pete's letter, Pete's use of she as a pronoun to describe the United States likely would not be accepted by individuals or groups who, in contemporary times, get excited about rabbit holes of discourse analysis. Obviously, it would have been better than she here. But I think we get what Seeger was trying to say. Secondly, Seeger's point in that same line is taken, that many marginalized populations have historically flocked to the United States seeking refuge. But of course, it's perhaps a bit of a stretch to say it always has been a functional haven. Certainly the indigenous question isn't effectively acknowledged here, a common phenomenon of the 20th century. Thus, while gaps might exist, it's quite possible that, while Seeger was expressing opinion, he was also looking for language in a framing that could get some attention to show the American Legion their hypocrisy. In any event, the American Legion in California forwarded this letter to the FBI, who then shared it with the War Department. The government then began researching Seeger's entire background, the Almanac Singers, his associations with Woody Guthrie and Lead Belly, and even information about his attendance at his old elementary school at Spring Hill, Connecticut. In documents obtained through the Freedom of Information Act in 2015, Mother Jones Magazine explains that the FBI officials even went to Pete's old high school at Avon Old Farms, Connecticut, seeking information about Pete's character. Agents also went to Detroit, seeking information at venues where the almanacs had played and music shops where the group had stored their instruments while in town. During the almanac period, Pete had been performing under the false last name Bowers to avoid having the media connect him with his father to protect his father's government job but the FBI eventually made it to Charles anyway, seeking knowledge about possible Communist Party ties. An agent even went to Woody Guthrie's apartment in New York City, trying to gather information about Seeger as to whether he could be trusted. Woody said yes, and that the Army should put Pete's talents to good use. The agent was skeptical, though, because at Guthrie's apartment, he saw a guitar that bore the words, quote, This guitar kills fascists, unquote which was indication to the Bureau that the Almanacs were communist sympathizers and were, quote, spreading propaganda, unquote. Seeger had even been interviewed himself by a government official who went to Biloxi to corroborate information directly from the horse's mouth. 
The official's report confirmed that Seeger was engaged to a Japanese-American woman, that there was indeed an organization called the Japanese-American Committee for Democracy, whose supporters included Pearl Buck and Albert Einstein, and that the organization believed that Japanese Americans on the West Coast would not want to be deported after the war. Interestingly, this was the official's conclusion in his report. Quote, It is this operator's opinion that Subject was truthful in all answers that he gave this operator. Subject spoke freely concerning the Japanese American Committee for Democracy and made no attempt to discolor in any way or in any way praise this organization. From all indications, Subject has no idea that anything he has done, or any associations he might have had in the past, or might have at the present time, would be cause to hold him on this field or keep him under surveillance at any time." Unquote. The collective FBI investigation, which was shared directly with J. Edgar Hoover, suggested regarding Pete and Toshi that, quote, "...their marriage will quite possibly fuse and strengthen their individual radical tendencies." Unquote and that Seeger was conclusively, quote, an idealist whose devotion to radical ideologies is such as to make his loyalty to the United States under all circumstances questionable, unquote. In this memo, Seeger was labeled as, quote, potentially subversive, unquote. This information was seen by the government as enough to keep Seeger where he was. In a letter to his grandmother, Pete emphasized his optimism, not necessarily knowing in full the extent of the government's investigations into his background. As the letter to Pete's grandmother read, quote, It is possible that I am being held here because of my former connections with the Almanac Singers and because of my engagement to a Japanese American, but I doubt it. I have never tried to hide either fact, unquote. Pete might have been optimistic here, but trying to always be the hopeful person he was, we can't really blame him for attempting to be positive in the face of such unjust investigations. Pete received a furlough in the summer of 1943 and went back up to New York City where he and Toshi got married. Pete was frustrated that he would spend the entire war in Mississippi and so to try and change things he went to his father for help. Charles Seeger was able to use his government connections to change Pete's orders so that he could be reassigned. Let's listen to Pete tell this story in an interview from 2011. And then finally out, I was spent a whole year being trained to run the hydraulic system of a B-24 bomber. But military intelligence got in, in, investigating me, and I stayed down there in Biloxi, Mississippi, picking up cigarette butts for six months. Finally, I get a furlough. I did something I've always disapproved of. I used pull. My father knew a major in the Pentagon in what they call special service. And I walked up to the second floor of the Pentagon. The major was behind his desk and I said, uh, if things go on as they are, I'll be spending the whole war picking up cigarette butts, but I'm a good song leader. And if I could get overseas, I think I'd be of use to the war effort. And by gosh, I got changed to a, to a uh, special service company. Went out to the island of Saipan in the Western Pacific. And I was in charge of hospital entertainment for that little island. I'd bounce around the 
island in a jeep putting up a uh, poster, poster. If you can, if you can entertain in any way, whether it's you're a magician or a musician, uh, call this telephone number. We got 10,000 wounded here on this island waiting to go home after being in Iwo Jima or Okinawa and they could sure use some cheering up. Toshi had actually gone with Pete back down to Mississippi when Pete's orders finally changed. Seeger was momentarily reassigned on paper to a base in Texas, but then received orders that he was to transfer to Fort Meade, Maryland. From 1943 to 44, this is where Pete was stationed, operating in the Special Services Division for performers. Being in Maryland allowed Pete to travel easily back and forth to New York City to continue doing musical work with some of the former almanacs and other musicians. During the course of 1943-44, to Seeger recorded three more records. One was an album of songs from the Spanish Civil War, which Pete recorded with Bess Lomax, Butch Hawes, Woody Guthrie, and fellow folk musician Tom Glazer. These were a combination of songs that originated in Spain as well as others put together with traditional American melodies. The songs on this record speak to the Spanish Republican fight against fascism in 1937 and 38, and the lack of resources and support they had in this conflict. The songs also discuss the struggles of the Abraham Lincoln Brigade, the volunteer force of 3,000 Americans of many eclectic backgrounds that traveled independently to Spain to assist the Spanish Republicans in their fight against Francisco Franco. For those unfamiliar, there were about 35,000 volunteers from around the world that joined the Republicans in Spain in their fight against fascism. This was really the beginning for when Americans entered the European conflict, even if it happened outside of any congressional declaration of war. According to Smithsonian Folkways, a few of the songs contained in this record that Seeger and company recorded include Harama Valley, sung to the tune of the traditional Red River Valley, as well as Viva la Quinta Brigada and El Quinto Regimiento. In the clips that follow, you'll hear Seeger's unique Spanish flamenco arrangements and tunings on the banjo. We are proud of the Lincoln Battalion and the fight for Madrid that it made. There we fought like true sons of the people as part of the 15th
Viva la quinta precara, rumba la rumba la rumba la. Viva la quinta precara, rumba la rumba la rumba la. Que se acuquia tregoria, ay manvela, ay manvela. Que se acuquia tregoria, ay manvela, ay manvela. Harama Valley's lyrics originally were written by Alex McDade a soldier from the Volunteer British Battalion. Woody Guthrie later wrote some different lyrics to this song, focusing more on the struggles of the Americans in the Lincoln Brigade. El Quinto Regimiento speaks about a proud and significant group of Spanish Republican soldiers called the Fifth Regiment. The chorus says in English, Come, fight, fight, look, the fighting is already over. These lines speak to the patriotic commitment and positive outlook the Republicans have in attempting to defeat Franco's forces. Viva la Quinta Brigada means long live the 15th Brigade. We fought against the Moors and the mercenaries and now the fascists, and it is our only wish to defeat fascism. A second project was when Pete also played on Earl Robinson's record, Lonesome Train. This record has been described as a ballad opera and tells the story of President Lincoln's burial train making its way from Washington, D.C. back to Springfield, Illinois. The words were written by Mill Lampell of the Almanac Singers, with the music written by Robinson. The song was recorded by Decca and is nearly 25 minutes long altogether, with the actor and singer Burl Ives singing the vocal sections of the poem while Seeger plays the banjo. They carried the news from Washington that Abraham Lincoln's time had come. John Wilkes Booth shot Lincoln dead with a pistol bullet through the head. The slaves were free, the war was won, but the fight for freedom was just The third recording project with which Pete was involved was with a group Alan Lomax put together called the Union Boys. This record consisted of six songs, titled Songs for Victory, Music for Political Action. This was produced by Lomax and recorded in March 1944, being released sometime between May and September. The group playing on this album included Seeger, Tom Glazer, Woody Guthrie, Cisco Houston, Josh White, as well as Piedmont blues duo Sonny Terry and Brownie McGee. The record cover is interesting, as it depicts a white woman, a white man, and a black man perhaps trying to emphasize the eclectic relevance of the music for different working-class demographics. The album was recorded by the original Ash Records, founded by the legendary Moses Ash in 1941. Ash Records would soon go on to become Folkways Records, which would eventually be extremely important for Seeger in making records after the war. This record consists mostly of political songs continuing to focus on unions, but with reference to the role of unions in organized labor and enabling war production to function effectively. General questions of economic and racial inequality are also lyrically addressed in the album, outside the direct framework of unions, which was of course the main focus of the Almanacs a year or two before. Musically, the record continues to adopt Appalachian melodies and old gospel spirituals, with the group writing new words to these tunes. Track one of the album, called A Dollar Ain't a Dollar Anymore, is a song about inflation and the cost of living. The vocal lead is taken by Tom Glazier. I 
I was feeling kind of hungry, so I thought I'd buy some bread. I went into the corner grocery store. I took out the usual money, but the grocer shook his head. Cause a dollar ain't a dollar anymore. Oh, a dollar bill don't buy what it used to. Don't buy what it used to. Don't buy what it used to. A dollar bill don't buy what it used to. Cause a dollar ain't a dollar anymore. Track two, called Hold On, is derived from the spiritual, also known as Keep Your Eyes on the Prize, Hold On, and speaks directly to the necessity of the president's leadership as commander-in-chief of the military in the war. Seeger would sing the traditional spiritual very frequently in future decades, but would incorporate some of these patriotic lyrics in singing Keep Your Hand on the Plow. In this version, Josh White sings lead, with the others backing wide up on the refrain. United Nations make a chain, every link is freedom's name. Keep your hand on that gun, hold on. Track 3 is titled as Hold the Fort slash We Shall Not Be Moved, and has both those two songs on the same track. Hold the Fort is another Union tune that connects significance of labor to success in World War II. Tom Glazier sings the lead on this, and interestingly, it sounds as if Burl Ives is singing lead on We Shall Not Be Moved. For those that don't know this song, it is a classic Union song popular back in the 1930s. Join our hands in union strong to battle or to die. Hold the fort, for we are coming. Union men, be strong. Side by side, we battle onward. Track 4, titled Jim Crow, speaks directly to Jim Crow and segregation. The song's lead is sung by Josh White, with the others humming behind White in the background. These vocals, sung in the traditional almanac singer style and arrangement, intentionally gives the song a mysterious, haunting tone to help show the darkness of racial inequality in America. Why is he still in slavery? Why is he still in slavery? It's Jim Crow. 
Track 5, Sally Don't You Grieve, features just Woody Guthrie and Cisco Houston, and is a quick number that is sung from the perspective of a GI going off to war and leaving his partner behind, but not to be sad because the fight has to be fought. I'm gonna jump in a flying machine and load it full of this TNT. Stop old Hitler, what I mean, and I told her not to agree that to me. It's a when I'm gone, Sally, don't you grieve. It's a when I'm gone, Sally, don't you grieve. It's a when I'm gone, Sally, don't you grieve, and I told her not to grieve after me. The final track, UAWCIO, is another union song, discussing the importance of the automobile industry being organized. Just a couple of years before, Henry Ford and the Ford Motor Company were finally organized into the CIO. This song, like Hold the Fort, explicitly lays out the importance of solidarity in keeping unions strong to provide the infrastructure necessary for the war. Was hanging around a defense town one day, one day, when I thought I overheard a soldier say, soldier say, every tank in my camp has that UAW stamp, and I'm UAW too, I'm proud to say, it's that UAW-CIO, makes that army roll and go, turning out the jeeps and tanks, the airplanes every day, it's that UAW-CIO, makes that army roll and go, puts wheels on the USA. Eventually, Pete's ability to travel back and forth to New York and continue engaging with his musical community there did come to a close when he was finally shipped out to Saipan Island in the Pacific with special services in 1944. But before he left, Seeger wanted one thing in order, his banjo. Seeger's five-string banjo was the traditional 22 frets long, which, as we know, he had been playing since 1936. But Pete found that this had limitations. He couldn't play in F-sharp, and in switching keys, as a folk musician often must do, Pete would have to move his capo way up the fretboard, which dampened the tone of the instrument in the bass notes, and prevented Seeger from doing certain instrumental leads or breaks, simply because he would run out of neck. Pete had had this problem specifically when he was recording Viva la Quinta Brigada on the Spanish Civil War songs record. He had wanted to play it in C, tuning down the fourth string, but playing in C minor like this was just a little too high for Pete's tenor voice. To remedy this situation, Pete took his Vega White Lady 22 fret banjo to his friend and well-known luthier, John D'Angelico, founder of the D'Angelico Guitar Company. At D'Angelico's music shop on the Lower East Side, Pete asked for the end of his banjo neck to be sawed off and to add two frets. Something like this constitutes major banjo surgery, but D'Angelico pulled it off. This allowed Pete much more versatility in singing and performing. Pete played this banjo for over five years, until it was stolen out of the back of his car later in 1949, when he stopped into a cafe for a cup of coffee. Most photos of Pete in the 50s show him playing several long neck banjos with three extra frets, which allows one to play an open E. This gave Pete even more versatility to play more sophisticated blues, extending what he could do with the instrument. This extended neck banjo would eventually be designed and sold by the Vega Banjo Company out of Boston, Massachusetts, and was the model Dave Gard later played in the Kingston Trio. It is odd that so few banjoists play the long neck nowadays, in consideration of what a banjo player can do with such an instrument. The long neck banjo will be discussed again on the podcast, 
but suffice it to say for now, it is essentially a Pete Seeger invention. On Saipan, working in the Special Services Division, Seeger became responsible for organizing hospital entertainment for wounded GIs returning from battles in the Pacific who were headed back to the States. Pete's responsibilities included organizing shows and programs, traveling around the island and shuffling schedules, but of course, he was also doing a lot of singing and performing himself. In his autobiography, Pete explains that to avoid making too much of a ruckus during late-night jams with other musicians around the post, the soldiers would crowd into the latrines and jam out there, where Pete says he heard some of the best music of the entire war. But in terms of actually working with the other performers in the Special Services Division, Seeger discovered that he had an advantage over them. Whereas the juggler's act was short and quickly over, and whereas the clown had a limited number of jokes, Pete had a vast repertoire of songs to draw from. He found that he could play for 30 minutes every night for two weeks without repeating a song. This was indeed an outcome of the hard work Seeger had put into practicing his instrument and traveling and learning from others for the last five years. This was beneficial not just for keeping his act fresh, but in playing for wounded GIs, Pete was thrust into the situation of interpreting an audience and playing things they would connect with while also showing them something new to enjoy or think about. While Saipan had some productive moments for Pete artistically, there were other disappointments. In August of 1944, Pete received word of the birth of his son, Peter Oda Seeger, about which he was naturally quite proud and overjoyed. However, about six months later, Pete received a message that his young son had died, having been born without a bile duct tube. Pete never really discussed the event in his letters, but this pushed him to thinking more about when the war would end and he would arrive back home. Additionally, Pete did not find friendship in all of his comrades. For example, when traveling back across the island playing a gig of country songs for the natives, a fellow soldier from Texas started reminiscing about how back home every once in a while they needed to, quote, string up a black person just to keep them in line, unquote. Pete asked the others to stop the jeep so he could walk back to the barracks himself. This was rather dangerous to do because there were still Japanese hiding out in caves across Saipan who had not surrendered and military personnel were instructed never to be out alone under these circumstances. Seeger made it back fine, although the others in the jeep were worried that he would report the conversation, which Pete never did. In any case, the presence of this ignorance and bigotry made Pete feel more like a failure, similar to how he felt with the Almanacs before the war. It seems ironic that a 26-year-old with half a dozen records under his belt, a major music tour done, and having performed for tens of thousands of people at once, should feel depressed about their musical accomplishments. But that was Seeger. Pete was in many respects the quintessential product of the Protestant work ethic, and the New England mentality that one could always have done more. But Pete struggled to see all this in perspective. Like many GIs, he longed for home and the new projects he hoped to begin. Well, the coffee that they give you, they say is mighty fine. It's good for cuts and bruises, and it tastes like iodine. I don't want no more of our Eli. Gee, but I want to go home. Well, the biscuits that they give you, they say are mighty fine. One rolled off a table, and it killed a pal of mine. I don't want no more of our Eli. Gee, but I want to go home.
Pete Seeger was discharged and returned from Saipan in December of 1945. Bess Lomax describes Pete as being different when he came home. He was far more physically fit and stood more confidently, but he seemed to be able to see more clearly and more national vision for music and politics now. Pete put his vision into action with a new organization called People's Songs. What exactly was People's Songs? Pete had actually begun brainstorming the idea on Saipan with his friend and Almanac Singers fan Mario Boots Cassetta. The idea was to create an organization that worked towards constructing a singing labor movement across the country. In Seeger's view, every church has a chorus, so why not every union? People's Songs was essentially a grassroots movement to disseminate music to unions that they could use for organizing purposes and for other left-wing causes. People's Songs was founded officially in January 1946, with its first meeting of the organizing committee held in Toshi's parents' basement in Greenwich Village. The committee of founders included Seeger, Toshi, Woody Guthrie, Lee Hayes, Sis Cunningham, Burl Ives, Mill Ampel, Alan Lomax, Bess Lomax, Josh White, and Tom Glazier. Others that were present were Ronnie Gilbert, who would become the female vocalist for the Weavers four years later, and Erwin Silber, who would go on to play an important role in folk music beyond people's songs. How did people's songs work exactly? Well, the committee of organizers and advisors began with a newsletter called the People's Songs Bulletin, which members would receive once a month. In the bulletin was a host of musical material and song recommendations for members to sing with their unions or leftist quote-unquote hootenannies, meaning a dance or musical jam. As a side note, hootenanny is a term Woody and Pete picked up when they were traveling through Seattle in 1941 that they learned from some musicians there. I have to admit, in growing up in the Boston area anyway, I never attended a jam with that as its title when I was a bluegrass banjo player. There was a television show by this name in the 60s, likely pulling from its popularization in the folk scene, but it is somewhat of a retired term, it seems. The Guthrie Center in Great Barrington, Mass., hosts events that they refer to as hootenannies, but this is likely one of the few venues that still employs the word. In any event, the folk songs made available by people's songs had to have some sort of organizing purpose. The newsletter was not a place for any Broadway show tunes, Love Dove or June Croon-type songs. The first circulation of the bulletin came out in February of 1946 and was circulated to 3,000 people nationwide. The inaugural issue lays out the purpose of the organization on the front page and invites rank-and-file individuals and songwriters alike to become members. The writing is very democratic, as it shows readers who the leadership is and what the organization's objectives are. As the front page to the original newsletter says, Quote, the people are on the march and must have songs to sing. Now, in 1946, the truth must reassert itself in many singing voices. There are thousands of unions, people's organizations, singers, and choruses who would gladly use more songs. There are many songwriters, amateur and professional, who are writing these songs. It is clear that there must be an organization to make and send songs of labor and the American people through the land. To do this job, we have formed People's Songs Incorporated. We invite you to join us. To unions, do you want to publish a songbook for your members? Write us for help in putting one together. Do you want a song composed especially for your union? Would you like to have phonograph records of your own songs for use in your locals? These are jobs which we are prepared to do. 
Activities directors should subscribe to this bulletin with its regular song supplement. To songwriters, we are going to print the songs of both amateur and professional songwriters in this bulletin, which goes to singers, leaders of choruses, and to organizations all over the country. Here is a new way of reaching your audience. Arrangements can be made through us to have your songs printed in sheet music form. You are assured of complete copyright and royalty protection. Singers, leaders of choruses, and performers may become members of People's Songs and receive this bulletin. You will get many new songs you can use, and some of the older ones. If you need lyrics for other songs, we can help you find them." Unquote. Beyond the first publication, the second issue from March says that there is a need for new songs relating to housing, high cost of living, employment, and voter registration, and asks songwriters to write to the National Office in New York for more information. It also tells songwriters to start thinking about writing songs that will be relevant for the fall political campaigns that November. The March issue continues to have songs, lyrics, and musical notation for people to learn and use on their own. One of these is an amusing version of The Worms Crawl In, The Worms Crawl Out, with new words about union scabs, or the people paid off by owners to break up strikes and keep the workplace going. Here's a recording of a live performance of Seeger and Lee Hayes performing for a crowd where Pete is teaching people this song and others, where they are showing the crowd songs they can use for their own union's strike. It is unclear where or when this was exactly, but naturally it would have had to have been sometime between 1946 and 1949. Now I think a good many of you at some time in your life have been on a picket line and marching up and down, feet get awful tired, and you shiver if it's on a cold day and you sweat if it's on a hot day, and you often maybe wondered what the heck you could do while you're out there besides shouting some slogans or carrying a picket sign. A lot of people around different parts of the country made up songs. We'd like to put on the screen here a bunch of songs that I think you all know the tune of and be able to sing with us. Now, the first one goes the old tune, The Worms Crawl In, The Worms Crawl Out. God knows who made it up first, but let's see if we can't get together. Well, the scabs crawl in, the scabs crawl out, the scabs crawl under and all about. They crawl by day, they crawl by night, they crawl because they're afraid to fight. They crawl in early, they crawl in late, they crawl in under the factory gate. The scabs crawl in, the scabs crawl out, the scabs crawl under and all about. And so on, that can keep on going for two hours. <laughs> now, uh, the next one goes the tune of the farmer in the dell. It was made up by a man named Murray Nathan. I never met him before, but he was a member of the Furriers Union way back around 1935, and he sang this. We pity our bosses five. We pity our bosses five. A thousand a week is all they get. How can they stay alive? We pity the boss's son. We pity the boss's son. He rides around in a Cadillac, a lousy son of a gun. We pity the boss's wife. We pity the boss's wife. She's all dressed up in silk and pink. Oh, what a hell of a life. That one also can keep on going. Now, the next one is to the tune of the gospel train or get on board, little children. I think you've all heard it. You sing two verses and then you sing a chorus. So don't come in on the chorus until you make sure there aren't two verses. 
Now the Union train is coming, I hear it close at hand. I hear the car wheels moving and rumbling through the land. Another verse. Though the fare is cheap and all can go, no color line is there. No second class aboard this train, no difference in the fare. Keep that line a moving, keep that line a moving, keep that line a moving. There's room for many more. We've got so many blisters from walking up and down. Boss has got some blisters too, but just from sitting down. And why should we be slaving while the eager He's a Western Union boss. To plan a coming up party for his daughter at the Ritz. Keep that line, a moving, keep that line, a moving, keep that line, a moving. There's room for many a more. The union is behind us to fight for better pay. We'll stay right here on the picket line till the boss's hair is gray. And though he'll try to break us and try to make it tough, if we just keep a solid line, we'll surely call his bluff. Keep that line up. Next time you're out on the picket line, maybe you can sing that too. Incidentally, if you ever want to learn any of these songs, just come around to People's Songs. You can become a member. You get 130 West songs. 42nd Street. <laughs> and you get all these songs every single month. New ones get made up, and they're sent out to anybody who wants to sing them and learn them. The $5 one, a year. Or if you're a member of a club or chorus, you can get it for just $1 by 10 of you joining all at once. On that last song, Keep That Line A-Moving, we can really hear the audience joining in on the chorus and getting into the rhythm a bit with some clapping. It's interesting to consider that maybe many people in the audience already were familiar with the song, perhaps through their own organization that had already shared it with them. Clearly this was not a song that they would have heard on the radio, but it is admittedly hard to distinguish this from people who learned it for the first time right then and there. So it's difficult to know how new the song was for people and what exactly that might have actually looked like. But in essence, all this was a community to support labor unions and left-wing groups with an artistic strategy. Much of the work the leadership structure did was logistical, focusing on transcribing new songs at their tiny office on West 42nd Street, answering phones and responding to mail. In short, Pete was busy. Because of how hectic this was in the beginning, the organization started its own booking agency called People's Artists. The second issue of the bulletin states that People's Songs is not there to operate as an organization for performers, although they did fulfill this function of getting performers to rallies, union halls, and other shows when the organization received a request for a performer. On the overall, People's Songs was doing novel work, but they faced several challenges. According to author Robbie Lieberman, Earl Robinson and others were always fighting for performers to get paid. Woody Guthrie was evidently asked once to perform for free for a quote-unquote good cause, and his response to the woman who asked him was, quote, Lady, I don't sing for bad causes, unquote. 
In general, people's artist goals were lofty, and they faced a lot of backlash in trying to establish connections with other groups in general, most notably the Communist Party. Like before with the Almanacs, Seeger and People's Song's relationship with the party was not on ideal terms. Pete had reached out to the party's representatives to try and gain their support and work with them, but usually they would just performatively tell Pete to put them on their mailing list, and that was it. Ironically, it isn't as if the party didn't sing songs at events. They did, but they didn't see folk music as an art form that could be productive for them. For example, once when Pete was playing Appalachian tunes alongside Union songs at a performance, a party representative had taken Seeger aside, telling him that what he was playing was inappropriate, because the better way to connect with workers was through jazz, something they understood better. This, again, was part and parcel of the issues Seeger and the Almanacs had experienced back in 1941 and 1942 in trying to get urban audiences connected through rural American music. While this may have been a mitigating factor at times, Pete was doing this out of the same vision he had not just for people's songs, but for music in general, wanting to turn urban audiences onto working-class music of a different cultural geography. Pete saw this as necessary for the working class to effectively work together. Pete had seen the ineffective practices of the Composers Collective back in the early 1930s. Aunt Molly Jackson had once performed for them, and they had barely given her any applause, a small component of this larger phenomenon of ignorance that bothered Pete. Back when Charles Seeger lost to Aaron Copeland in his songwriting competition, Charles even admitted that Copeland's was better, but it wasn't as singable as his. It's interesting to consider how things would have turned out if Pete had tried doing people's songs with a clarinet instead of a banjo, as the Communist Party had wanted. The Communist Party in the 1930s and 1940s was frequently more concerned with their own internal power struggles and had many sectarian feelings towards other groups, such as the socialists, even making fun of them lyrically in song at rallies. Members of the Communist Party did support other art forms, like literature and film, which party members would write about in new masses, but they mostly snubbed folk music. Malvina Reynolds, author of the famous song Little Boxes, ended up leaving the party over all this. In and of itself, though, this rejection by the Communist Party of people's songs didn't flat out deter the leadership of the organization by any stretch. It would have been helpful to have the party support, though. Fred Hellerman, later of the Weavers, explained that regarding the significance of people's songs, quote, The stated purpose was to change the world. Another purpose, a good purpose, was becoming a central point for people with like interests and goals to establish contact, unquote. This was definitely true, and is indeed part and parcel of any organization, probably. But what was unique about people's songs is the definition of people. What did that mean exactly? It meant that it didn't necessarily have to include people already in the fold. The fundamental idea was to bring in other groups and individuals who did not previously have access or familiarity with this knowledge or these resources before. Mario Cassetta, who was in charge of the San Francisco chapter of People's Songs, explained that emotional affect was important for energizing a crowd to make a point at leftist meetings. This is opposed to expecting working people to solely listen to long speeches. A fundamental contribution to the labor movement that People's Songs tried to make was that politics and radical thinking could be fun, and this would be an important force for driving people to organize. Pete faced leadership issues as well in People's Songs. 
For one, Erwin Silber, who later went on to publish Sing Out magazine, was tasked with several of the publication responsibilities of the bulletin, over which he and Pete argued frequently. Additionally, Pete had trouble with Lee Hayes, who expected equal billing as vice president, but things had changed. Lee would type out his column in the office and chat with people stopping by, but would talk about people behind their back and could be an awkward person to work with at times, as he was a very uncompromising individual. Pete had to apologize to Alan Lomax when Hayes insulted him once, as Hayes and Lomax had never gotten along anyway. Eventually, Pete had to ask Lee to step down from his position, something he felt awful about having to do. But there was much at stake, and Pete didn't want any liability. Outside of the lack of acceptance by the Communist Party, People's Songs faced a new and different political climate in the United States. The immediate post-war era meant the no-strike pacts that were in place for industrial war production were now over. By the end of 1946, five million American workers had gone on strike, in large part due to returning GIs coming back and seeking old or new jobs. Thus it makes sense that People's Songs was initially so successful. They even held a national conference in Chicago in October of 1947. But the conservative backlash was coming in greater proportions. Now the disciplining of labor was more strongly driven by anti-communist sentiment, which set in with the presence of the Cold War, something Seeger and his affiliates hadn't foreseen. To begin with, unbeknownst to Seeger or any others in the organization, the FBI had been investigating people's songs. They'd been following them since March 1947, when the Army report on Seeger from Biloxi resurfaced. The FBI had secretly attended the convention in Chicago, reporting to J. Edgar Hoover that, quote, they play folk songs where the hoity-toity red intellectuals gather, unquote. An agent had gone to California, seeking information about the group, discovering the organization was run by a guy named Peter Suger, according to the notes from the agent. The agent ended up speaking to Mario Cassetta, who, being a very persuasive salesman, amusingly got the agent to buy a subscription to the bulletin. In May of 47, the Bureau had labeled People's Songs a, quote, communist front, unquote, in the U.S. Army's weekly domestic intelligence survey. Like with the mainstream press labeling the almanacs, the intelligence community had now formally done this to People's Songs. Over the next two years, the FBI compiled 500 pages of material on the group. According to David Dunaway, this included stolen and photocopied documents, phone calls recorded without warrant, and stool pigeons who infiltrated People's Songs meetings. But for the time being, People's Songs kept on going. In 1948, the major event for People's Songs was an invitation to support Henry Wallace, the Progressive Party presidential candidate. Henry Wallace had been FDR's vice president from 1940 to 1944, but had been passed over as Roosevelt's running mate in 44 because he was seen as not centrist enough, and the Roosevelt campaign wanted to appeal to right-wing Southerners. Wallace was mainly a peace candidate, but many would consider him more left than Roosevelt or Truman. Politically speaking, Wallace was more in line with the ideology promoted by people's songs. Alan Lomax negotiated a contract for People's Songs to write campaign music for the Progressive Party. Ultimately, Pete Seeger and black bass singer and actor Paul Robeson were invited to travel and perform for the Wallace campaign. The tour was touch and go, with some crowds being warm to Wallace in the songs and others showing epic distaste. Wallace had been advised not to campaign in the South, but he went anyway. 
In Mississippi, Seeger was accosted by a white man who yelled, quote, I bet you can't sing Dixie, unquote, to which Pete replied, quote, Sure I can, if you sing it with me, unquote. The man was livid, not knowing whether to sing or not. Pete sang three verses he had learned in the army. What was a more severe moment of the campaign, however, was an altercation that occurred in Burlington, North Carolina, when a large mob descended on the campaign motorcade. The crowd saw blacks and whites in the same cars, riling up a contingent of people already angry that these folks were in their town. Seeger was keeping his instruments safe in his car, while a bunch of men crawled on top of the hood and roof of the vehicle and started banging away loudly. Eggs were thrown at Wallace and other campaign officials. Whenever Wallace tried to speak at this rally, the crowd roared and interrupted him. Wallace reportedly took a man by the arm and said, Am I in America? To which the man said, Get your filthy hands off of me. We who like Pete Seeger know him as someone who had that uncanny ability to tame a crowd and get people singing together. But magic isn't actually real, and sometimes these things don't work. The campaign with Wallace was one of those times. Joining the Wallace campaign, while correct for people's songs ideologically, could not have been worse for cutting ties to unions. The conservative populist backlash of the late 40s shows how people's songs wasn't suited to the post-war political climate, and the songs in and of themselves couldn't change this. Before World War II, something might have been more possible in the long term, but the impending Red Scare had detracted unions from wanting to associate with a group like people's songs. Oddly enough, the FBI had concluded in their reports that the group could not be successful with their songs if they didn't have a movement attached to them. But, of course, the Bureau played a role in damaging that movement. Pete wrote to Earl Robinson saying he was convinced that the organization hadn't made the right artistic decisions. But the issue was, of course, much more than this. When Seeger returned to New York after the campaign, he found out that People's Songs was essentially bankrupt. A staff member named Harvey Matt remained strangely cheerful despite all this. In his role at the office, he had offered to set up a book and record buying club. He had purchased large quantities of records, which disappeared, and left a bunch of bills. The final bulletin shrank from its typical eight pages or more to four pages when the printers wouldn't give any more credit. The organization closed shop so quickly that the San Francisco chapter didn't even get a chance to vote on the matter. People's Songs officially closed in March 1949. Pete himself had found trouble getting his own gigs. Only a few wealthy conservative people, for whom Seeger had disdain, would hire him. Even his old haunts around the village wouldn't give him a job. All this made Pete lose interest in being in New York City. As a result, Pete and Toshi began making trips up the Hudson to Dutchess County, where they began looking for an old farm. Everything with a building was too expensive. Eventually, a real estate agent proposed buying land at $100 an acre. With some money borrowed from friends, Pete and Toshi put down a payment on 17 acres overlooking the river in Beacon, New York. This would be the beginning of Pete's next chapter and his home for the next 65 years. Come on along, come on along, join the picket line today. Come on along, come on along, join the strike for higher pay. And when the scabs try to break us, here's what we say. Shame on you, scab, did you work hard today? We'll win a raise the union way. 
in spite of you. Come on along, come on along, join the picket line today. Come on along, come on along, join the strike for higher pay. And when the boss is sure he's got a slick, we'll still be singing. Come on along, come on along, join the picket line for joining us today for this episode this gets into um in our next episode this one and next into a really crucial period for pete seeger this is right before he gets into the weavers and he's sort of in a transition time at that point uh as he has some pop hits and then things take a turn with the blacklist soon after that um but the 40s are such an interesting time for for seeger um he accomplishes so much despite of what he maybe thought about it at the time um there was so much work that he did and um not only did it of course lay the framework for what he would do in the late 50s through the 60s but it's still a resource today and i think that begs um a little more discussion of what david dunaway says in his biography of seeger when he said that people's songs are were were born too late um I don't know. I, of course, we established in I establish here that it's true that um, you know the conservative politics of the late 1940s made it difficult. Um, but at the same time, you know they filled a void and a need, and a lot of great music came out of it. Um, there were forces that existed beyond their control. Music alone can't accomplish everything, and um, the, all of it showed. I think that you need more resources, more mechanisms, in organization and human infrastructure to make things happen. You need the movement. Um, but those songs exist today, and um, they can still be sung. And unions and other organizations, leftist groups, can still apply them. And they exist. They're out there in the ether. They're available. The records were made. Um, so we have to remember that. Uh, the battle is over, but the war goes on. Another point I want to make is, as we think more about the FBI and surveillance, why, you know, we have to think about the question, why does the FBI do all this? And It's not just about discourse. It's not just about anti-communist representation and labeling. Um, of course, it was all just about creating a job infrastructure for themselves. Um, it was about capital and protecting their own capital as government workers, as individuals that were in power and wanted to maintain their own economic power. And at the end of the day, it's not just about how it's imagined uh, that might be a tool for maintaining power through capital, but really um, it's about the kind of material stranglehold. Um, that's what the FBI is working towards. Not every FBI agent knows they're doing it. That's power for you, but it contributes to that overall objective, I think. And um, we have to remember that that's a part of all of this. In conclusion, I want to give a shout out to um, my old labor union from graduate school in Eugene, Oregon, um, the Graduate Teaching Fellows Federation, AFT 3544. Uh, have filed an intent to strike because of um, negotiations regarding wages is my understanding 
I'm not, I'm not up on all the news, but uh, all I can say is uh, my heart is with you. Keep that line of moving. That last tune we heard Pete singing, Come On Along, is for you folks. There is a Season is produced, written, and recorded by Adam C. Morris. See you all next time. Bye.